Ladies and gentlemen, as I opened my curtains this morning, I confess, I thought, what an ideal day for a garden party. <laughs> Indoors. <laughs> like everybody else, I, I find it marvellous to be back, uh, if rather later in the year than, than the normal garden party. But what a remarkable interval since the last one. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, looking around, uh, we've had bereavements, illnesses, projects for the society, new appointments, major domestic challenges, some ensuing lack of confidence, uh, and of course unforeseen levels of loneliness. And some of us have become positively ancient. Yeah. Times have changed, and this talk would hardly have been practicable in the portable airship ship. I have chosen Samuel Franklin Cody partly because there's so much residual knowledge among you and while it's 14 years since the last time that I spoke to the society there's no need to mention every scintilla of his life because it is a garden party and of course I want to look at Cody as a hero. We need our heroes, we've needed our heroes the last couple of years they help to give us aspirations. Though, with the exception of the Christian man-god Jesus Christ, they inevitably, as humans, have their flaws. Arguably, William Shakespeare's greatest characters were his tragic heroes, purveyors of amazing accomplishments, but with fatal weaknesses. I don't have to tell you Macbeth was ambition, King Lear pride, Hamlet, indecision, Coriolanus, pride, um, and so on. And is it a mark of Shakespeare's genius that we can apply present-day standards to Shakespeare's enduring dramatist persona? Should we do so? If so, what about Samuel Franklin Cody? Yes, I am getting round to it. <laughs> An American born in 1867 into the turmoil that followed the American Civil War, where his father had been a federal soldier, unlike Cody's version that he was a, an officer in the Confederates. His health had been ruined as a prisoner of war in the South's brutal camps. And when he returned to the family after the war, he was redu reduced to taking odd jobs. And by 1875, he deserted the family completely. And Phoebe, his wife, was one of the most unusual ladies at the time. This is very early in getting a successful divorce and, and having custody of all the children. Now the children were five children. And as you can appreciate, they had to grow up early without a father in those days. And Samuel was the second youngest. And he left home we know by 14, by his age 14, um, with pretty minimal education. Cody could hardly read and write. And this is the most important thing, I think, to consider when we start for any consideration of him. What did he achieve against these penalties? He certainly became an accomplished horseman. Um, and he was possibly a teenage trail boss. Uh, Cody was talking, um, as he did so often, about leading ten cowboys and a cook with 3,000 cattle across five states on a 120-day journey. That's, that's pushing it a bit, isn't it? Really? Um, and we need to be cautious, because Cody was a romancer, especially in his early days. Cody had a hero. Cody's hero was William Frederick Cody, Buffalo Bill. And he was such a hero to Cody that Cody changed his name from Cowdery to Cody. You can't be much more than that. And um, Cody also aped Buffalo Bill's dress. There he is, the hero, uh, and um, with his cowboy hat with the buckskin, and um, 
the moustache, which is a Buffalo Bill moustache. Buffalo Bill was a young teamster. He was, young, he was a teamster at 14 years of age. And um, one hopes that Cody was probably the same. The early details of Cody's life are, are hazy and they're not, they're not helped by Cody's romancing. Uh, but one thing we do know, by the late 80s, the days of cowboys on the open plains had gone. Uh, the railways and barbed wire had finished that off. So you can say in, in modern parlance that Buffalo Bill and Samuel Cody were both redundant. Samuel before his career had fully flourished at all. Now how did they cope with this problem? Buffalo Bill started giving an authentic picture of the past through his Wild West show. And this was an incredible show, 200 people with uh, cattle uh, on, the, on the steamer from, from America to, to Britain. It was watched by Queen Victoria, she loved it. And um, you, you know, the names I mentioned, Shawshot Annie Oakley, uh, Chief Sitting Bull, lovely, superb face, and Doc Carver, um, the great Shawshot as well. Samuel Cody took a slightly different route. He invented himself as a showman cowboy. He wasn't there to just show, he was there to act and do. And... Um, his act was a sharpshooting act with pistol and rifle. And he was taken on by the Four Paw Circus in America. And um, he probably learned much of his um, shooting uh, from uh, Buffalo Bill's Doc Carver. After about a year with uh, circuses in America with his act, um, he met, um, when he was 22, um, 18-year-old Maud Lee. Uh, and um, I think they'd known each other for an amount of weeks only. And they performed together in America, and apparently he taught her to shoot, and shoot well. But during 1890 to 91, they came over to England and unwisely called themselves Captain and Miss Cody, Buffalo Bill's son and daughter. <laughs> and as Buffalo Bill had only one child, this was somewhat somewhat unwise. And he put his solicitors onto it, who, who took a very a, a grave exception. And both Cody and um, Maud had to disappear for five months. When they reappeared, they, they, they again took place in, in part in, in Wild West shows, and they, it was a good act. Uh, Maud used to have uh, glass containers on her body, on her head and round her body, and Cody would shoot them. Uh, now, being Cody, he wasn't satisfied with this. He would use a mirror and shoot from looking in the mirror and shoot through his legs. Um, but... He, he apparently never hit her. <laughs> um, now, again, it gets very, very sketchy. Uh, but um, Maud uh, was a drug user, a heroin. And the story goes that she went out of a, a, of a, 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 a um, plane or, or, or a false plane and she dropped by parachute and the parachute didn't fully open, and she injured, injured herself, and as a result she was given heroin, and she became an addict. Uh, well, she left Cody, went back to America. Why she left Cody, we, we don't know. She, she might have um, found it very difficult to live with this, this egotistical, massive man, or she really wasn't, just wasn't up to it. But uh, she went back to America, and although she performed reputedly as a shooter herself, because Cody had uh, coached her, um, she eventually had to give up, and she was admitted long-term in Norriston's mental hospital in Pennsylvania for some 47 years. Well, Cody couldn't wait 
47 months because next year he reappeared with a new female assistant, Elizabeth Mary Layla King, a daughter of an upmarket horse dealer. And she had four children by uh, a publican, um, and um, they were Lizzie, Edward, Leon, and Vivian. Uh, here they are, all in their all in their kit, um, and you can get an age, uh, idea of the age. Um, the two younger boys uh, were very much part of Cody's act, and he taught them as as you'd expect to shoot. And one of them used to shoot when he was hanging upside down. Cody would hold him and he would be hanging from Cody and then shooting very accurately. Well, they were a great act and the, and the, the whole family enjoyed Cody because Cody was really like a great big boy. He was, I would argue that he was a great big boy that somehow never grew up, which was his strength as well. But, um, they, they, they certainly were a good act and they were, they, they were a united one. Uh, and they were so united that, that Layla actually was 15 years older than Cody. So Cody decided to uh, increase his age by six years and get Layla to do the reverse. Uh, and, I mean, they kept this because it, this, was, this was still there when Cody, was eventually, uh, when Cody eventually died. So we have Cody, the self-assumed theatrical hero, who could be pretty liberal with the truth but who had immense energy and skills and persona. And, um, okay, he's with this family and it's fine, but very soon, being Cody, you'll be looking for new challenges. And what did he do? He took on the French cyclists, who were the best cyclists in the world at this time. And he said, I will race you with my horses. And it was more difficult than that because he had to take his horses from any stables that were round, round about. And um, nevertheless, Cody usually won, one way or another. And he would spice it up by winning, by sitting on two horses at the same time, just going past, just, just timing it so that he would beat the, the bicycles. And in the, the other significant thing is that, that in Europe, his only natural son, Frank, was born at Baal in 1895. He also spiced up his act uh, with an automatic pistol, incredibly unusual at that time. And this was this was a pistol which which had a magazine in the butt, I, I think eight shots in the butt. And Cody was so skilled at this that uh, reputedly he could drive a large nail into wood at fifty feet. It was invented by an American called Hugo Borchardt. Um, and modified by his salesman, who happened to be Gorg Luger. And, um, of course, it became the, the sidearm for the German army in the First World War, and, and still in the Second. And they made it rather smaller. They made it much, much, much handier than this. Uh, but um, this was good enough for Cody that he could almost make it speak. And, of course, tremendous example, because the British army, its marksmanship was, was not really valued to that extent in this time until after the Boer War. Most importantly, Cody is moving his family on, not only to give the, the normal act, but to give sketches of the Wild West. And these were pretty serious things. And um, very soon, uh, this really semi-literate man writes a melodrama which is accepted by the Lord Chamberlain, called the Klondike Nugget. And the Klondike Nugget was about the Alaskan oil fields. So it's, it's pretty certain that Cody did experience this. So he played it to the music halls, and it was the first British Western. It was classic good versus evil. Um, played to packed houses for five years, and through it, Cody got income for the whole family and he, he himself took £1,500 a year out of the thing when the average wages were 75 So it has to be successful, this man's energy. It was an incredible performance because he got, he got his shooting act, he got horse, horses, 
um, going through plate glass windows onto onto mattresses that people couldn't see. Um, he'd got a comedian. He'd got singing. He got it was absolutely all happening. He also played uh, the hero and the villain. But when he played the villain, uh, Sam Dietz, he used to tell the audience out of the side of his mouth that his heart was not as black as Dietz's heart. <laughs> Never would be. So Cody could not destroy the image of the, of the hero, I, I suggest. As I said, the nugget couldn't keep him going for much longer. Anyway, it was five years was a tremendous uh, run for it. He did have other, other plays which were not successful. But not unsurprisingly, that was because his imagination had gone to kites. And kites, not just kites, but kites that will rise in the sky and take him up as well. Now look at the size of these kites. How did he get into kites? He says that his cook, uh, his old Chinese cook on the range, uh, flew kites and that got him interested. I think that was very simplistic. Uh, he was a great rival uh, of um, Baden Powell, Major Baden Powell, uh, the uh, leader of the Aeronautical Society. Well, Cody's kites are large. Also, what you have got, um, Cody is not, he's not any, really an inventor. He is an adapter, brilliant adapter. And this kite is basically a, a four-sided kite. It was a box kite, but with Cody it's got all these extras on it. Um, and the kite was invented or, or, or popularised by a man called Lawrence Hargrave and it became the basis for the beginning of aviation. It certainly inspired the Wright brothers but, and it inspires Cody here. But the kite was fine but Cody was determined that it would be converted into a system that would take people into the sky. There is Cody. Now, can you, you don't have to use your imagination too much to realise how hazardous this is. <laughs> I mean, if I were up, it would be spinning. I, you know, I, and, but it does show the box kite there very much. Now, what he did was he put up a cable in the sky from his kites, yeah, and, and he then went up that cable, um, and, and down the cable. He, he became very, very um, uh, adept at it. And why did he go up and down the cable? Uh, because he, this was then a station, it was, it was stable, and Cody believed that his kites were not just fun, his kites could be very constructive indeed, because the British Army had a balloon school, and um, really balloons uh, need lack of wind, kites need wind, so you're going to provide a 24-hour service uh, by if you use Cody's kites as well. And he, he um, approached both the War Office and the Admiralty and tried to flog them his kites. He, he was pushed on to Colonel Templer at Aldershot's Army Balloon School. And, um, but Templer is engrossed in moving his school to somewhere convenient because he is looking for airships. And he's not really terribly interested in Cody, and Cody is sent off. And being Cody, um, he immediately approaches the Admiralty. He's not going to take no for an answer. And he takes part in sea trials with his kites. Now if you can imagine, a kite isn't that easy to control. And imagine it on the deck of a ship, and a moving ship, Imagine the infrastructure uh, taking the wind away. In fact, when they passed um, islands as well at Portsmouth, uh, the whole situation would change because suddenly the, the wind would be completely transformed. <coughs> and um, Cody had problems, uh, but the, the Navy was so impressed with him that they asked him for his financial terms. Because they wanted to buy these kites and they wanted to transform uh, their power of, of reconnaissance. I mean, you are moving from uh, a, ma a master crow's nest uh, to something 
hundreds of feet up. Cody makes a terrible blunder. He um, says that he's, he wants an annual salary of £1,500 a year, which was reasonable because he got, had 12.50 from the Klondike Nugget. But he wanted a premium on joining the Royal Navy of £25,000. And when he stopped, he wanted another premium of £25,000. Now, when you think that that was far more money than building the Cambridge Hospital in Aldershot, you can appreciate what he was trying to do. So they rejected Cody, and they, they confined their interests to a single set of kites. But all isn't lost, because in 1904, Farnborough is chosen for the site of the new balloon school. They've looked all over the country and, and then come back to Farnborough. And the next year, Colonel Kappa, who had taken over from Templar, Cody to, uh, copied Templar's moustache. He was very, you know, he didn't, although he was sent off with a flea in his ear, he, he, he didn't completely go off uh, uh, without, without something. But um, Kappa is a different kettle of fish. He's much tougher and harder. And uh, he takes on Cody as a kiting instructor uh, and for any other duties that he might give him. But this is not now, this is not um, uh, £1,500 a year, it's £55 a month, which is far less than half, although he gets more later. He also, Cody, is, is, has, uh, has registered uh, kites as official patents, and um, these he values at about between six and £10,000, uh, but there's much wrangling goes on and goes on for years before he gets his money. But already um, at the school, Cody's ambitions to fly uh, go from kites to aeroplanes. Now that sounds a quite a great big leap, but do remember that the Wrights had flown from 1903, the French were flying from 1906, so aeroplanes were there. And um, the tradition was there. You've got Cayley and you've got Pilcher. So you've got the English tradition. Uh, Pilcher is flying, although disastrously. Uh, and um, he builds his glider kite because Cody is a brilliant, practical engineer without any engineering training at all. And he's learning, he's learning as he goes. And he isn't conceptual in the sense of, of, of um, somebody with a far greater education. Cody has to go from the practical, one step after another. And the first step is his glider. Now this had to be put up on a cable or you, you fly it off a scarp uh, and you lie flat in it. And like all things Cody, it's quite big and it's got all these little little bits at the end, which whether they were necessary or not, uh, debatable. But it flew, and um, other people flew in it, uh, and one of his sons flew in it and crashed it and injured his back. But basically, it was a good vehicle. And he followed this up with his power glider, uh, was in the airship shed, and it had a small engine, 15 horsepower engine, uh, and stubby wings and so on. And um, Kappa laid down that it should not be released, so it was on a cable and it would rush round the airship shed with a tremendous noise and everybody had to get out of the way. Uh, but it was it's a part of his progression uh, to his aircraft. But unfortunately for Cody, he cannot work on his aircraft. Uh, Kappa has deceived him to a certain extent because Kappa uh, welcomed him uh, uh, for kites and then, then agreed to his aircraft and he took on another man a man called John Dunn as, as another uh, aircraft uh, pioneer so he got Cody and Dunn but he uses Cody on the school's airship Nulli Secundus well Nulli Secundus has its limitations it's like a great sausage isn't it really um, and it's as streamlined as a sausage and it was made out of the, the skin of oxen. And um, to make this, they were talking, uh, inclining it to be like somebody with postage stamps 
on on the whole wall. Uh, the number of the number of individual skins that made up were, was incredible. But I'm not talking about the skins; they did work, and they were pretty pretty um, impervious. But Kappa did not know what he was going to do about making this thing travel, and he used Cody as his mechanic. Cody was sent to France to buy an engine, and then he was required uh, to set up set up his um, a gondola, isn't it? It is a gondola, and um, you'll see that it's got planes and 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 stuff. Typical Cody. It's very busy. But it works, and Cody's the only person who can turn over the engine, apparently. So, after three attempts, just three attempts, Cody and Kappa fly this airship from Farnborough to London, round, round at the Royal Palace, round Buckingham Palace, and past the old war office. And they land at Crystal Palace, because Cody knows Crystal Palace. And they can't get back because it's a 50 horsepower engine. It's a pretty difficult craft and the wind is against them. And um, there, there is a squall uh, and Cody and Kappa have gone back to Farnborough and there's a corporal looking after the airship. And a squall, squall takes place and the, the airship is thrashing to get away. And this corporal has to fashion a harpoon of sorts and pierce it. And so enthusiastically did he pierce it that it was destroyed. He was promoted to sergeant because he was <laughs> his quick, quick thinking, but, but in fact the airship suffered. Uh, Kappa being a very determined and obstinate man is going to build a second airship. This is the great opportunity because uh, Cody is not required as he was so much for the second airship they had to start from scratch. And Cody then takes that opportunity to get back to build his plane. You see with Cody, it's, it's a long process, it's a difficult process. He's an outsider, he's always butting against, against the authority. And um, he now has an opportunity uh, to build his plane much more intensively. But being Cody, he can't take that opportunity because he has to go to Portsmouth and um, he has to uh, take part in sea trials there. It wasn't until September of 1908 uh, that he could be released from these sea trials. On the sea trials, you, you've got an idea of the challenge that Cody's got on ships. In fact, um, the, the wind changed and he was dragged behind a boat uh, under the water, and um, <clears throat> nearly lost his life. So they put him in a breeches boy here, as you see, so that the next time he won't sink. But it was a pretty hazardous time, and um, he wasn't too unhappy uh, to escape to get on with his uh, aeroplane. Now look at the size of this aeroplane. Now you can say that that was Cody because of the size of it. it that wasn't absolutely true because this plane was large for one reason, that it was built towards Army specification called British Army Aircraft Number 1. And why was it British Army Aircraft Number 1? Because it had certain specifications. It needed to carry two passengers, it needed to carry their maps and instruments, and Cody said he was told that they would also have to carry a, a Maxim gun was pretty heavy and clumsy. The two passengers were reckoned to be about 340 pounds weight. The Maxim gun was about half that and Cody was between 14 and 16 stone at this time. So this, this aircraft uh, was expected to, to achieve uh, an amazing thing straight off. It also had to have four fuel for four hours flying and capable of taking off the, the Wrights had a catapult. They were they take off by catapult, but this plane had to take off on its own and land over open grassland and make flights of two hours or more. All these all these requirements. So it was larger than any other European planes, but of course still a right uh, still a right derivative. You've still got the 
you've still got the um, box kite construction. But the Wrights were able to go on for lightness. I mean, they could, they could uh, really rehearse their um, gliders on the sands at, at Kitty Hall thousands of times, because if they landed on sand, they didn't write them off. They could then start again. But Cody doesn't have that luxury. He's got he's got Farnwood, which is is not a very uh, it's not friendly at all. Plain friendly. It's got it's got uh, cattle troughs and 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 uh, vegetation on it. So what he has to do is succeed straight away. And you will remember that he has only got one engine, which is fifty horsepower, and he's expected to power this plane with th uh, what you've got three people maxim gun uh, fuel and so on uh, with his 50 horsepower engine so the result is uh, that it is bound to be have more problems uh, than the rights when they took off but because of Cody's determination and, uh, and his ability he finally uh, makes a successful flight at Farnborough quite against all the odds. And we know they made the thing. This is a, a press photograph. The press were waiting for him to do it. And um, I'm not going into the detail of his first flight, but um, he takes off to, smoothly to the surprise of everybody. Uh, and he travels 440 yards uh, over, over difficult terrain. And in the end, he can't get away from... from a small tree, he has to use his rudder very, very um, uh, sharply, and he crashes, and he badly damages his aircraft, and his length of flight is 27 seconds. Now, before you laugh about it, uh, the Wright's first flight was 10, 12 seconds, so um, I think you've got to give Cody that, that um, credit. And, of course, he is the first to fly his powered vehicle uh, on his own self by, by himself in Britain. There is no doubt about that. Um, press have got the photograph. And at the same time, uh, Kappa is, is helping uh, his other, um, really, his, his other constructor, uh, John Dunn, uh, to fly in Scotland. And John Dunn fails. So Cody succeeded, Dunn has failed. And when Kappa comes down to Farnborough, he is extremely annoyed because Cody hasn't let on that he was making this attempt. Um, he minimizes Cody's flight. He denies that it has any significance at all. And um, at the same time, Wilbur Wright is flying superbly uh, at Le Mans. So everything is there to diminish Cody's achievement. And it's going to get worse because the British Committee of Imperial Defence, uh, with the personnel that were there at the time, were so dissatisfied with the relative lack of success with aeroplanes that it suspended work on aeroplanes and decided that both Cody and Dunn should be dismissed. Uh, so Cody is getting a few, a few brickbats coming at him uh, at the time when he should really have been appreciated for what he achieved. It's the signal, I think, for Cody to show his undoubted tenacity and continuing belief because he asks for his wreck of his damaged plane to be handed over for, to him and for him to continue experimenting at his own expense. At his own expense, he had really had very little money. But he is allowed to buy a piece of land uh, nearby, near, near, near Farnborough, on Laffin's Plain, um, by the, by the um, General Officer Commanding Aldershot, General Smith Dorian at the time. Um, now, it's only a small patch of land, and he builds a shed 150 feet by 150 feet, big enough to put his aircraft in. But the, the rest of the land is still there for farming and, uh, and cattle and all the rest of it. Um, but he's now faced the problem of turning British Army aircraft number one, which is three times more sluggish than the Wrights aircraft, into, into a flyer. Um, 
So this unlettered, uh, un, untutored, uh, untrained man has got to become the first test pilot in this country and he's got to show genuine engineering skills. And uh, what's he got to do? I mean, there is Cody's plane, isn't uh, that? I don't need to say how, how complex that is. Uh, look at those radiators. Uh, they, they hide the vision. Look at him, he's almost behind the radiator, you hardly see anything. And of course, it's got, it's got the front elevator, so it's back to front, really, because it's a Wright's plane. And it's got this big rudder overhead and the rudder at the back. Kind of pram wheels, a bit, bit better than pram wheels, but then wheels at the end of the wings. It's a remarkable aircraft. So he, he plays with this. And the first thing he does is he moves the pilot to the front of the aircraft, which must have been terrifying because he's looking into nothing at all. Um, he also moves the radiators out. He installs aerials uh, to help turning and, uh, and landing. Um, and he moves his rudder that was, was on the top in, in forward by his elevator. I can't, you can't see too much of this. I'm talking very quickly and you can't see all that much, but you can certainly see this elevator in the front and Cody in, in nothingness, virtually. He's still got this awful problem of a lack of power. Nothing can solve that. But he does, he does acquire a French 80 horsepower ENV engine, which is much better. It's not brilliant, but it's much better. And he, practices and practices and practices and he thinks then he has an aircraft which is good enough to take up a passenger and of course it has to be his boss Colonel Capel or his one time boss Colonel Capel um, that is his aircraft you can see Colonel Capper here uh, the pucker officer back there with his cap and he's watching Cody like a hawk you can imagine he's very uncomfortable you imagine this is carrying a passenger cocked up there in the back and um, but he's taken Kapper and he takes him safely and returns with him. Then he takes uh, Layla, who's the second person, and um, their flywheel comes loose and starts to jam, and they nearly nearly crash. And he comes down and um, just about gets away with it. Um, <clears throat> but he's got an aircraft of sorts, and um, he's got to get money. So that October, he enlists as an entrant to the first air show at Doncaster. And um, they, he, he enlists because they pay him £2,000 to enter, which is a lot of money. Uh, but the French enter, and they're much better than Cody, and the weather is terrible, and he damages his plane, he injures himself, and the one thing that comes out of it is that he takes on English nationality. And being Cody, that a band plays and he signs the papers on the back of the chief clerk uh, um, and everybody cheers. But the point about this, apart from his change of, change of allegiance, is that he can now enter uh, competitions uh, for uh, British pilots. But it's the end of the year and it really is... Um, hopes unfulfilled still. Um, 1910, um, it starts with him building a new aeroplane. The £2,000 from Doncaster and £1,000 that he gets from his kiting, kiting patents, somehow he gets it from the Treasury, enable him to build a new aircraft. Now what's different about this aircraft? The big thing that's different and you can't see it on this because it's not on this, is that he had two engines and he tried to synchronise them because he wanted more power. Well, how you synchronise two engines at, at his stage of development, of engineering development, I do not know. And he couldn't succeed. He crashes, he gets concussion, he damages his plane, and it's not until um, he gets rid of one engine and flies on a single engine, a 60 to 80 green engine, that the plane really starts to fly. And we are getting well on in the year, 
So what can Cody, what can Cody do? Where can he compete? And there is a competition coming up, uh, which is for the plane that could fly furthest round a set circuit by the end of the year. And the winner uh, would get £500 and a Michelin trophy. The Michelin trophy is a beautiful bronze trophy uh, of um, Pegasus climbing, climbing into the sky. And the trophies are in the Aldershot Military Museum. They're, they're um, the one thing they've got, for, main thing they've got for Cody. Well, it's, it's really a competition made for Cody because you need, you need good nerves. And it's Russian roulette. You are waiting as late in the year as you possibly can so that the weather deteriorates to such an extent that nobody can follow you. <laughs> and he's got two worthy competitors. He's got Tommy Sopwith, um, and I don't have to say Tommy Sopwith, a brilliant pilot, um, a wealthy man, uh, going, to, going to become one of the leaders of, of British aviation, and another good pilot called Alex Ogilvy. Now they're both flying right derivatives. And... Um, Everybody's waiting to go. They're practicing and they're waiting, they're waiting to make an attempt. Cody goes first on the 22nd of December, only what, nine days to go before the end of the year. He sets off and he flies 114 miles in three hours. And he thinks the thing's over. He's looking for another competition. He thinks that's it. I've won. But on the 28th of December, Alex Ogilvy flies 139 miles and then on the 30th of December, Sopwith flies 150 miles in, at his third attempt in a four-hour flight. So on the 31st of December, Cody is up early and he's off to Farnborough. And he's setting off on their two-and-a-half lap circuit. And he sets off at about between 100 and 250 feet. And he, for three hours and 49 laps, he's going round and round and round. But he's only travelled 120 miles, still much further to go. And then the wind rises and it gets far colder. And despite having his uh, intake pipes icing up and being extremely cold, because it's a wide open plane he's driving, and there's no protection, he coaxes it for four minutes, four uh, hours, 47 minutes and flies a total of 185 miles, which is a record for duration and distance. Uh, he lands with no petrol at all, dry tank, and he's covered in ice. His beard and so on, he's covered in ice, and um, somebody has assembles a band to play Here Comes the, the, here, the uh, Hero Comes. Um, undoubtedly an heroic performance. We're back to my word hero. I am, haven't quite forgotten it. Uh, but is this going to be the springboard for more success? Next year, there is a new competition which shows the amount of progress that's been, been, been achieved. It's to, it's a round Britain, uh, race for £10,000, uh, sponsored by the Daily Mail. And they've got to cover 1,014 miles in 24 hours flying time which is a, a tremendous advance on, on, on uh, the, the, the year before. And the favourites are the French, two Frenchmen, uh, with uh, monoplanes and rotary engines, no motory engines, and they duly win quite easily. So the race is there for minor places. Um, Cody gives a bravura performance. His large, clumsy plane is just not fast enough. Uh, but um, he... Finishes fourth, uh, which is certainly not to be sneezed at, and he beats uh, another British flyer, uh, Jimmy Valentine, who significantly is in a monoplane as well, as well as the two Frenchmen. Now, the race had to be extended in time for Cody to finish. He comes up so many times, he comes down, hits walls, and has to have his uh, tank uh, re-welded re, uh, and so on. And um, when he gets to, it's, the, play, the, the race is very simply to about Edinburgh and back, although you have many stages on it. Cody is coming back to Carlisle, and when he lands at Carlisle, 
he gives an impromptu performance at the Royal Theatre there at 10 o'clock at night telling them all about his great race. And the point about it is he has to have money to decoke his engine, which is really getting in a terrible state. Uh, and um, he sets off from there and uh, does the same thing at Western Supermare, where he gives another performance and takes off at 4 o'clock in the morning from the sands and 5,000 people are there, 5, people are there to, to see him off. He hasn't won hardly anything. He's, he's really smashed his plane and, and overworked his engine. Uh, but um, he has gained, I think, the admiration of the, of the, of the whole country or watching him. Uh, and um, he estimated that the French winners spent £150,000 in winning when, of course, he had got nothing like that. What was he going to do in 1912? How was he going to succeed then? Because he hasn't got any more money. He hasn't got um, enough to build a radically different plane. So what can he do? Now what is this? What is this competition? The competition is for the plane for the Embryo Royal Flying Corps. Tremendous honour to be taken up by the Royal Flying Corps. The importance of this I cannot exaggerate. Um, what can Cody do? Well, the first thing he can do is he can buy an engine cheaply from a wrecked plane, which he does, and he buys a 120-horsepower Austro-Daimler engine. Big engine in those days. And the plane was wrecked, but Cody repairs the engine. Now he's got something which can transform the performance of his aircraft. But being Cody, he has desperate luck, and he crashes and destroys four planes before the competition starts. Now one of those is a monoplane. The most important thing, it's got the 120 horsepower engine, it's very fast, it's got a cabin which makes it, makes it aer aerodynamically better than, than being completely open, um, and he thinks he has a chance with it. But um, as, he's, as he's practicing, the engine cuts out. He's over his shed, and it cuts out, and this isn't that unusual, but he has to find somebody, somewhere to land. And um, you imagine, in the air, you, you look down, and you think the field is pretty level, and it isn't. Uh, but he, he comes down, and um, he's practically on the ground, when there's a terrible percussion, and he hits something. The, the plane breaks up under him, and Cody is thrown out, and is concussed and, and, and cut and so on. And um, what he's done, he's hit a cow. Um, now it sounds funny, but of course Cody didn't have the, the grazing rights, so the farmers could graze right round his hut. And the cow apparently saw the shadow of his plane on the ground, and the shadow was there, and the, and the cow either either fled from it or charged into it. Whatever happened, it was a great big thump. And um, Cody had to pay the farmer £18 compensation, uh, even though he fought the case. And the press were very amused. They thought this was the end of Cody's chance for the competition. But amazingly, in three weeks prior to the competition, in his workshop with its earth floor and carbide lamps, his four-man team assembles an aircraft from the debris of, of those that were crashed. So everything against him. And of course he can't now have a monoplane. He's got to really go back to his the, the safety and the speed that he can assemble the plane. So it's going to be the, 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 the um, basically the flyer changed. But it has the 120 horsepower Daimler engine. Now, he goes to Lark Hill, where the tests for the Royal Flying Corps are held. Eight tests throughout the month of August. And one of them, uh, how, why, why they had it, I've no idea. Most were flying, but one of them was to, to dismantle and reassemble the aircraft, which Cody did in one hour, 35 minutes. And even then, he was only fourth of the eight remaining contestants. He won no test 
against technologically advanced aircraft, but he did well enough in every every one of them to win outright. So it's rather like a 500 to 1 outsider winning the Grand National. Um, what is it? Why why so so successful? He's a great pilot. He's got a good engine, and he's very experienced with this aircraft. Whereas some of the other other planes are technically more advanced, but they are not tested enough at that time, and um, there are there are limitations that break down and so on. So he earns four thousand pounds first prize, and a thousand pounds for the winner in an all-British plane except for the engine. So he's won £5,000 this test, and he wins, he, he, he doesn't win, but he receives £4,000 for his kiting patents from uh, the um, HM um, Treasury. So Cody, for the first time in his life, is in funds. Now what about this? There's no chance of Cody's aircraft being taken up by the Royal Flying Corps. And the, the plane that's going to be taken up by them is the BE-2 designed by Geoffrey de Havilland in the Royal Aircraft Factory. And the only reason it didn't win the competition was that they, the judges were so fair that they excluded it because it was public funds that, that had built it. Um, but we're going back to Cody, I think you've got to say that with this performance, he is showing undoubtedly heroic qualities and skills. But, of course, you're as good as you are next year, and 1913 comes, and how is he going to do in 1913? He does make plans to set up his own aerial navigation company doesn't spend too much money. He raises £50,000 in shares and he, he invests these, this money that he won before in gilt-edged securities. So he, he's very canny. But he can't resist still flying the prizes. Even though he could step back and be, be the director of the company, he wants to still compete. He's 46 by this time, which is certainly not young in this, in this context. And um, he builds an aircraft, which is the biggest one so far, but it's one of his orthodox Cody aircraft. It's now absolutely out of date. It's huge. It's uh, 40 feet long, 60 feet wingspan, 14 six feet off the ground. And he's competing. He's going to enter the coastal circuit of Great Britain race. So not only has he got all that, but he's got to have floats on it as well. Here it is on the great bottom flash of the Basingstoke Canal um, and here he is um, looking with I think you're looking at the, the floats there and the, and the craft it is no more no more modern than many of his earlier ones it's still he's still in the uh, open to the elements but why does he why does he not do any more well he obviously wants to conserve his funds somehow um, and perhaps he thinks that as a pilot, he's, what, the year before he beat everybody, why can't he do it again? And his imagination is running away with him, and he thinks it's an excellent platform for all kinds of, of aeronautical um, extra uh, um, duties or, or uses. And uh, we're going to have another photograph. We'll see what one he had in mind. Uh, Cody thought that this plane of his was excellent for an air ambulance. And um, he could take up a surgical team uh, with an anaesthetist, a surgeon, and a nurse, and two patients. And um, there's the operating table, uh, which is an operating table, come um, stretcher, and everything else. And the patient is inside it. In Cody, it's quite involved. And um, it was fine, but you imagine they're taking up, what, three, five people and Cody? What a, what a, what a job for this, this plane. It's a 100 horsepower green engine, but my goodness, it's huge. And his plans were, 
effected at one stage because the patient nearly fell out of this patent thing in, into, the, into the wide open sky. Uh, they just about saved him. So while all this is going on, Cody's imagination is, is going elsewhere as well because he's planning to build a plane to fly the Atlantic, no less, non-stop. And what is it? It's not this kind of plane. It's a twin-engine monoplane, uh, double-decked, capable of carrying one and a half tons of fuel. And for it, uh, he orders a large engine from the Austro-Daimler company. Now, I say it's about 400 horsepower. Uh, Tony's been hunting to try and confirm this. We haven't succeeded, but we do know that he ordered it. It's, no, it's not moonbeams. He ordered it because after his death, uh, the Austro-Daimler company um, submitted a bill for £809, 15 shillings and 10 pence, um, and that was for an engine. So we assume that that was one of the two engines that he was considering. Well, that's the future, and he is faced with the coastal circuit race. And, but even before that, he takes up people for joy rides round Laffin's Plain. This is, um, this is Cody again. He gets five guineas to take them up. And, um, of course, they're always terribly impressed. And, um, on the, I think it's the 7th of um, August, it's the morning of the 7th, um, he's taking up his second passenger, or he agrees to take up a second passenger who is W.H.B. Evans, an Egyptian civil servant and brilliant cricketer. And his son, Leon, agrees to give way to um, Evans. Well, they're flying round on a short eight-minute flight, and Cody is coming in to prepare to land, and suddenly um, the, the plane um, seems to go up at one side. One of, the, one of the wings seems to go straight up, uh, and um, they plummet to earth, the two of them, and they are killed outright. They are cut off without any chance. The, the, um, uh, Evans, every bone in his body is broken in the, in, the, in the crash. Well, at least Cody got his wish, because his wish was that if he was to be killed, it would be in the air and swiftly. Cody never believed he'd be killed. He was, he was intestate in his will, he never believed that it would happen. Now, how did it happen? Uh, we, we will, like Cody, there is always mystery. Was he trying to make a perfect landing? He loved to make a perfect landing uh, with a bird coming down, cocking up, and then just floating down. Did he did that overtax his aircraft? Uh, his son, Leon, said it was a rogue propeller. I mean, he had a big propeller. And did that, did that uh, cut, cut his cable? Was it a system failure? In the event it was impossible, although the Royal Aero Club sent a representative to try and find the cause, people in the around had souvenir hunters had somehow taken the, taken the propeller off and stolen vital parts of the aircraft before anybody could get there to have a good look at it. Well, the tragedy was bound to shock and bring regrets to Aldershot because Cody's plane was one of the sounds of Aldershot as, as familiar as the clipping of their cavalry horses and the sounds of commands. And uh, Douglas Haig, who is General Officer Commanding, uh, authorises uh, Cody uh, to be um, in the military cemetery, the first civilian to be admitted. And on that, the funeral is bound to be flamboyant. Uh, and he is arguably given a hero's farewell. How can you argue at that? His coffin at Ashvale is there um, on a gun carriage preceded by a military band and when they set off he is accompanied by senior officers and soldiers from all Aldershot's military units, the whole of the Infant Royal Flying Corps, 300, um, both naval and, and army personnel, and many members of the Royal Aero Club. The procession itself is almost a mile long. 50,000 people 
line the route. 50,000 people at the um, cemetery. Is it not a hero's funeral? Well, heroes come in many forms, and um, uh, some are soon forgotten. And the Aldershot military were obviously much biased towards Samuel Cody because what he demonstrated that they could understand pure courage. Now, what do you think from your 21st century purchasing about um, Cody himself? Despite the grandstanding, uh, the use of facts, liberal use of facts, did his faith in his own star, his bravery, and his achievements, despite the penalties of his, his ignorance, and always being a perennial outsider, do you think that it, it, it fitted him as a true hero? Then again, can any true hero ever be as self-serving as Cody? Because <laughs> Cody was as self-serving all his life. Can any man be up to the model of the Christ hero? And therefore, should I drop that in my, in my uh, range of heroes? So, the, the notion of heroism remains, and it can be any, it can be another discussion, of course. And it's an enduring conundrum. And, um, I am, as a, I'm a commentator, and I'm ending as I began with, a, with questions. And I can't answer them, I'm not attempting to answer them, but all I can say is that by any standard, Samuel Franklin Cody had an incredible life. And as the last, the last thing, of course, he would also have much enjoyed the cake that we're going to enjoy <laughs> because he was a voracious eater. Thank you. Thank you.